a relationship to time is shifting so much these days that I feel that I need to put a date on this. It is August 10th, 2021. Time is only a construct anyways. Um, so if you believe as I do, that it's very possible that you are creating this entire reality with your own mind, then time is also just a construct. And uh, we've all actually had an experience of time being different. Um, when you're sitting and waiting for something to happen, um, then time goes very slow. Or on the opposite end of it, if you're waiting for uh, something positive, an event that's in the future to have to come, time may also go very slowly. Um, if you are experiencing something joyful, then time may go very quickly. Um, in any case, we all do have an experience of time being variable. I was relating to somebody recently. I've only been in one um, car accident in my life. Knock on wood. Uh, it was about five years ago. Maybe less than that. I can't remember. It was in San Francisco. <clears throat> it was a Saturday afternoon. And I was um, going to a, um, a yoga teaching group where teachers would get together and um, teach for each other to to learn from each other and it was a busy Saturday afternoon I was driving along the um, north side of Golden Gate Park and <clears throat> I was going straight and it was a really bad intersection actually later on I talked to somebody who lived at that intersection and said there was many um, accidents at that intersection because of the poor uh, visibility and signage. Somebody from out of town was trying to get into the park and kind of darted, darted in on a left-hand turn in front of me. And, uh, and time did slow down. So I can recall in my, in my mind, the moment I saw this truck pull in front of me, and then um, my first reaction was to put on the brakes. And then I thought, no, you're going to hit them. You, there's not enough time to miss them. And then, oh, but I'm going to veer slightly left. So I hit the back of that truck in case there's a passenger in the passenger seat, which it happened that there was. And uh, so that all went through my head. It must have been a split second, right? Because, um, because uh, I was going about 35 miles an hour which was the speed limit, so I wasn't speeding. Um, and I did have the right of way. Um, and then the next thing I remember is I'm parked on the side of the road and the airbags have gone off. Um, and so the car is filled with smoke, you know, from the airbags. And I kind of check my, I check my body. I do a body scan. Uh, am, am I okay? Yes, I am okay. Um, in fact, that car saved my life and I had a deeper appreciation for all the safety measures that we have on cars now. It was a Honda Fit, which my dear father had bought for me. It was my first new car. My dad bought me a brand new car, which is amazing. It's the first time I ever had a brand new car. Her name was Chloe. I only had her for probably two years before this happened. But the uh, entire engine crumpled, but the engine took the brunt of the, um, of the impact. And then between the seatbelt, the headrest, and the airbags, um, I didn't have whiplash or anything like that. I had just finished reading this book by Peter Levine about trauma. And in that book, he talks about how animals in the wild, when they go through trauma, after the trauma, they get up and shake it out. So they literally like remove it from their nervous system and body. And so I got out of the car and started shaking because um, I just read this book. 
and then um, I went over to check on the other people who were fine, and they took full responsibility for the um, for the accident. And um, the biggest learning I had actually out of this whole thing was that um, because of the safety measures and probably because of also my yoga practice and meditation practice, etc. I didn't have any pain whatsoever after this accident. And I went back to teaching yoga much sooner than I should have. And I went probably more importantly, if I'd just gone back to teaching and not doing any kind of adjustments, then um, I probably would have been fine. But I was teaching therapeutic yoga at the time, which involved, um, uh, you know, reaching down and adjusting people and lifting people. And I went back and did that. And I think what happened is there were micro tears along my spine and my neck and shoulder area. And um, I think I aggravated those. And so a year later, I actually started having um, issues. So I tell people, if you're in an accident, that you should avoid any kind of heavy lifting or using your arms, even vacuuming or whatever, for a month, just to let those... Um, let those micro tears heal from the accident. Time, that's what I was talking about. So it seems that now um, that time is, at least for me, it's um, almost hopping or skipping um, so quickly that there's no experience of the time in between. Kind of like what I just described where um, I have the the ability to um, to leave my body to separate my physical body from my um, etheric body, and so in that case, I think uh, my my self saw some harm potentially coming to the physical body and just leapt out for that short amount of time of the actual impact because I don't remember the actual impact and then left back in once uh, it was safe. Um, and so I do have experiences of this and another experiences I'm remembering is uh, shortly after I met Sotni Rinpoche, it was one of the Tibetan teachers that I study with, the teacher I took refuge with six years ago, six years ago, actually this month, I met, Sotni Rinpoche in, um, in Crestone, Colorado on retreat and decided to formally take refuge as a Buddhist in the Tibetan tradition. And uh, after that, uh, and I started practicing um, meditation in Dzogchen, uh, the Great Perfection, and deity practice in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, I started having an experience where in the morning I would wake up and the first moment when I would wake up, I would feel like um, I would feel like this world was a program that was this reality that I was experienced when I woke up was a program like a program that was loading and I could feel like kind of like the software loading of um of this reality it's almost like there was like a blank when I woke up and then the program would start loading this virtual reality it was uh, fascinating. It wasn't scary. It was just fascinating for me. Um, and I actually asked that same teacher uh, later that year about it. And he said, what he said was, is you're close. So um, I'm not sure what that means still. But in... Um, in the Buddhist perspective, 
I mean, there are many Buddhist perspectives, actually. There is not just one Buddhist perspective. But at the core of it, the realization that the Buddha had, the Buddha of this time, that is, in the Tibetan tradition, is called Shakyamuni Buddha, or we call Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, um, the, the one that we remember within this time, because it's possible that there have been many Buddhas in the past and will be many Buddhas in the future. Like Jesus, for example, also. Um, these, these figures that come and uh, are a shining light or example for us. But uh, according to the Buddhist teachings, and now I'm talking about the Theravada Buddhist teachings, the realization that the Buddha had was that there is no underlying reality. which is translated into emptiness. It's not empty, it's emptiness. It's space-like. And because it's space-like, it's space-like and it's infused with intelligence, luminosity, clarity, wisdom. The English language doesn't always do a good job of translating these things. For me, it always feels like a pregnant womb, except for that womb is limitless. And so the suffering comes from believing that anything here is permanent and not realizing or accepting that Everything is in constant flux. And wanting to hold on or to push away any kind of experience that you're having. And the Buddha describe this as being that the awakened state, in the awakened state, one experiences reality as if it is dreamlike. And what I find really inspiring about this is that just like in a dream, in a dream, anything's possible. You are not confined to uh, consensual reality. You can fly. You can transform into another being. Um, literally anything is possible. Well, what if that is also true in your waking life? What if anything is also possible in your waking life? The key, though, is your intention, your motivation. So what if there are 
universal laws. Whether they were put in place by something or just exist as fail-safes. That we, in this, in this day and age, call karma. Karma means action. Although it may be inaction, And so, of course, on a gross level, there's uh, action and reaction. Although those results of your actions may not be immediate, they may be much later. You may not be able to correlate them because, again, linear time does not exist. It's the morphology in quantum physics is called morphology. And so two points in time, two points in space can be physically appear very far away and still affect each other. It's the morphogenic field. But what the Buddha's teachings say and actually, it's not just the Buddhist teachings. It's called ethics in all, all of the spiritual traditions that we have. Is that the in, in, intention or motivation behind our actions or inactions is the most important thing. And they use examples like um, a knife. If you're a surgeon and you have the intention to save somebody's life and you use a knife to cut through somebody's body has a very different effect than if you take a knife and use it violently out of anger. A uh, yoga teacher that I've studied with off and on uh, over the years um, said once, this Ramanan Patel, he said, if you, if you really understood or knew or experienced the effect that anger has on you, you would never be angry. Now, as somebody who comes from a family of wasps and, and Southern Baptists um, who repress, their, repress all their feelings, which ends up being just passive aggressive, um, I've actually had to learn to express my emotions more, the difficult or negative emotions. Um, and I do believe that you can express those emotions in a way that is, is helpful, right? Um, so when you get very, when I get very angry um, with somebody, I try to go away. So I'm not directing that anger at them. And then I usually talk to somebody else about it. So I can express that anger um, and express those feelings that frustration, that uh, almost, I'd say 90% of the time for me when I get angry, which is not that often, it's because somebody has, uh, I feel they have overstepped boundaries. And um, that's what that anger is. It's like a, you know, it's like a, it's like a dog, you know, who you've crossed over the property line. Except for my property line is, is pretty far out there. It's, it's pretty porous and pretty far out there. And so if somebody has really crossed me, it's, it's usually pretty, um, 
pretty serious. It's been happening for a while and it's pretty serious. But anger is what I've learned is my re reaction to that. And so then I can look at, okay, what's going on in me? And 50% of the time, it's my issue. And 50% of the time, there's, um, I'm receiving information about this other person in terms of, um, is this a healthy relationship for me or not? Is this a relationship that's nourishing me and helping me to grow? Because sometimes people have been trained from their childhood to believe that they need to get everything. Actually, this is like our whole culture, right? Our consumer culture that they need to get all of their needs and their energy met by something outside of themselves. Christian Northrup calls this energy vampire. She has a book called Avoiding, Avoiding Energy Vampires. I guess the most extreme version would be, you know, what we call like psychopaths or sociopaths or narcissists or borderline personality. Um, I just think of it as like a neurodiversity. There's people who... Um, are not wired for empathy and some of them are very kind people with with wonderful motivation and as a result of them not being so sensitive to everything they're actually able to accomplish a lot in the world and um and if they're good people underneath it all then it's not necessarily a bad thing, but, um, the difficult part for me is that, um, because I'm an empath and because I radiate so much energy, then sometimes people who are on the other side of the spectrum um, are drawn to that and they want to come and feed on that because they have a program that says that they need to get that from outside themselves instead of from inside themselves. They don't yet believe that they have that capacity within themselves and they don't need to look out outside. But unless that person is in a place where they are willing to work on and that and change and transform, then um, it, I, there's nothing I can do. Actually, that's not true. Um, I can pray for them. I can send them good wishes. Uh, but being in my presence and interacting with me might not be healthy for me and also sends the wrong message to them and so sometimes we have to let go of relationships and connections with people Have you ever tried talking to your future self? One of my dear friends, Rachel Mathenia, uh, suggested this to me one time. To treat your future self as one of your guides. In, this, in these times that we're in, because now not only are we jumping timelines, but also we are 
uh, splintering timelines because consensual reality is splitting. All around what is happening as a result of a perceived threat. called COVID. I am very open to, I'm a Libra ascendant. Libra is the scales, balance. And I always am open to hearing other people's point of view. And as strongly and confidently as I may proclaim something, if I receive information um, that's contradictory that I, um, that I understand and is makes sense for me, then I could also change my opinion very quickly. Because I'm going from intuition. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not going from data. I think it's important that we all hone this ability to know things intuitively, somatically in our bodies now, because we, we really cannot trust anything that we see electronically. It's just too easy to produce something electronically these days. I can't remember what movie it is, but I some movie that they actually resurrected a character. I think it was in one of the Star Wars movies where they resurrected a character of an actor who's no longer in physical form who has changed to dress using AI. So it's just going to get more and more like that, where it's going to be very difficult for us to um, discern with our sense, with our sense organs, um, whether something is quote unquote real or not. And so we, we must hone that inner, knowing ability and I say all this because I like everybody else really don't I'm not sure what is going on regarding COVID worldwide But I'm being told by the media that this is a pandemic and that many people are dying or getting really sick and being hospitalized. And yet it's been 18 months and I do not know anybody personally. Now I know people two degrees away. I know people, I have a friend who has a sister who's in the ICU with COVID. I have a friend whose daughter works in the ER and has said that she's seen signs of this unusual illness that people are coming in with. So I, I do have that, but I do not know anybody personally one degree away who has died of COVID or who has been hospitalized even. And I, I find that strange. I find that strange. That, that doesn't add up for me. As a marketing person, I 
what looks like propaganda to me, selling the vaccine. Um, if this were truly as life-threatening to as many people as possible in this in our culture, in our in our society, to this earth, I don't think you would have to. I don't think you'd have to have a marketing campaign to sell a vaccine to people. I think people would be more than willing to take um, any any measure whatsoever. If we all knew four or five people who died, if we all knew personally four or five people who had died, we would all be more than happy to take a vaccine uh, or more than happy to take whatever this, this uh, technology is that they're offering. But, um, but I just said, that's not true. I don't know anybody personally who's even been hospitalized. So... And then the MNRA, I've talked about this before, this MNRA technology, the first thing that occurred to me when I learned about this technology is after that accident I mentioned, that car accident, a month or two after that, I, my dear friend, Eda, who's a, a curandera, shaman from um, the Amazon in Peru, was visiting the Bay Area and I received a healing from her and she said at the end of the session she said you know uh, that accident actually triggered some of your DNA and um, it's not um, it's not necessarily a bad thing it's not necessarily going to appear but you should just know that it triggered some of your dna and yeah so you can be aware of that i also was at a healing with her where uh, it was for breast people with breast cancer and we're in a room with probably eight or ten women who had breast cancer and she went around the room and told each of them what the origin of their breast cancer was and some of them, it was um, environmental triggers to their DNA. Now, you may not believe um, that somebody can actually see those things. In which case, um, if your religion is Western science, then you may not believe um, that somebody could see those things. But for me, I thought, well, if a car accident could change somebody's DNA, then a messenger RNA, which is designed to change your DNA, is most certainly going to change your DNA. And so I question, I question the long-term effects. At the very least, I question the long-term effects of this technology. And I have an underlying dread that this technology is not motivated, is not being created and motivated. The intention behind this technology is not one of It's not a positive one. If you follow the money and look at who is prospering through this, through these times, who is prospering? on the backs of people's fear 
on the backs of people suffering. And are they putting that money back into humanity? So this is what my intuition, my heart tells me through these times. But I don't focus too much on that whole, uh, we'll call conspiracy theory. Um, because whether or not you're afraid of a virus or you're afraid of a cabal, um, the key there is afraid right? Fear. Something out there is doing something to you or trying to do something to you. And being in a state of fear is not going to, um, most certainly not going to, uh, going to help. I'm thinking of Chugyam uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. He's one of the first Tibetan teachers who came to the West in the 60s. Might have been early 70s. Maybe he went to the UK in the 60s and then to the US in the 70s. And um, He's, he says in, I'm paraphrasing, that in the awakened state, there's a shocking lack of privacy. That you realize that everything that you thought was private, your private inner world, is actually not private. Fear is a way of separating. Of deepening the chasm between yourself and perceived other. When the truth of reality is that you are interconnected. Or the word that Thich Nhat Hanh uses is interbeing. You would not exist for without everything else. In the Buddhist teachings, this is called interdependence. And there are mind training practices where you break down yourself and you break down yourself. Oh, am I, am I these eyes? Am I these toes? Am I my feelings? Am I my thoughts? Am I the bacteria in my gut? <laughs> and you realize that you are you, what you call you is an amalgam of all of those things and interdepend interdependent being. And of course, as a human, one of my other teachers, Chukni Nima Rinpoche, once said that it, he said, 
a roll of toilet paper is going to last longer than you without, um, you know, without taking care of it. And what he means is that, you know, without being watered and fed and exercised and, and loved and that, um, that the human form, the physical form will perish very quickly. And so that is interdependence. You and I and every being on this planet is dependent, interdependent on with, with each other. And we see these, we see this effect actually with the the species that are becoming extinct what we can observe is that when a certain species become extinct that it affects the entire ecosystem it's not just it's not just about losing that amazing individual species, but it's the, the effect that that species has on the whole as well. And in our modern world, we treat bacteria and viruses as being not part of us but in fact they are part of us we always have bacteria and virus viruses and all other sorts of things are part of our being we have three to four pounds of of different biological organisms in our intestines which are what help us to create this physical form we put nutrients in and those uh those organisms are part of what transforms that food and water into what we call our body And why are we holding on to life so desperately? It is only if you believe that this is it, this is the only life that you get, But even if this were the only life that you got, you could easily see that nothing that you create, nothing that you, not your house, not your relationships, not, there's nothing in this world that you aspire to that you could take with you through death. And so what, what if this were the only life that you ever had, then what would you do with your life? I believe that's the gift that this time is giving us. It's asking people that question. If this were the only life, if your life were to end soon, what would you be doing with your life?
Now, I personally am not ready to die right now, but I am ready to die. I'm okay with death. Because death is not an ending. It's just a transition. Because I have a belief and experience of reincarnation. I've been really... The word, one of the words that's really been coming around for me is called is regeneration. Now, even when you look at the natural world, you see this, right? You see that um, if you have a compost pile, you put um, you put your food scraps out there, and they become soil that's full of life that then feeds another plant that then becomes food again. So that is reincarnation right there. That is regeneration. So we actually can see this um, in this waking life. We can see that there is regeneration. And some of the quantum physicists even say, if we live in a holographic universe or a, I think it's string theory, where there's multiple, multiple realities happening at the same time, you may be living out different timelines all at the same time. Like those choose your own adventure books that, well, I grew up with. And if you look back at your life, you can you can you can see that there there were there's big moments where we know oh i made a big decision i lived in japan i was going to get married to a japanese man and live in japan for the rest of my life and have kids um wow that's a different timeline but what if there's a part of me that's that's living out that timeline And it's possible that every single moment that each and every thought, word, action that you take is creating those multiplicities. And so it would make sense that if you hone your intention, if your intention becomes, say, about being of benefit, of service to yourself in the world, then perhaps those multiple timelines start to converge. so I'm willing to accept in this in this time that time and space and perspective are splintering into different factions I'm willing to love and accept somebody who has a different perspective than me.
hand, I'm also willing to stay true to myself. Even if it comes at a great expense. Because I also know that my thoughts, words, and actions affect many future generations. And with them in mind, I must continue to be true to myself, to my heart. May you be truly happy and have all the causes of happiness May you be free from the suffering of the negative emotions. May you be free from harm and feel free from fear and protected. May you be free from aversion and attraction and rest in equanimity. May you never be apart from your true nature of love and joy. And may you be liberated May you be liberated. May you be liberated.